You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. I've been doing more and more over the last several years is hiking. And the reason for that is at least twofold. The first reason is the pandemic. Uh, I spend more time outside in the year 2020 than I probably did the last 10 years combined. (laughs) And it was the best thing I could have done for myself. The other reason I've been hiking more is that about two and a half years ago, my parents made the decision to move to Estes Park, Colorado, just right before the pandemic began. And as a result, my access to really excellent hiking opportunities increased exponentially. The drive from my parents' home to Rocky Mountain National Park takes about 10 minutes if there's traffic, and by traffic I mean if there's a herd of elk in the middle of the road. Uh, So they're pretty close, they're pretty close. And there are countless trails there that boast uh, the most beautiful views. And what I've discovered on these trails as we've been hiking through the park is that I actually really love mountain hiking in particular. There really is no experience quite like summiting a mountain, standing on what seems like the top of the world, feeling the cold air and the wind and seeing out for miles and miles. It's it's indescribable. Here's the thing about mountain hiking though. You can be in great shape, incredible shape even, And yet there comes a time on almost every mountain hike uh, where you make it up so high that the air actually starts to get thinner. As in there is literally less oxygen way up there than there is down here. And it gets harder and harder and harder to breathe. Uh, In my experience, that moment usually happens once once you pass the the tree line. Uh, I think it's a technical term, but it's, um, for those of you who are not mountain people, it's the, the elevation at which trees can't grow anymore because not only is there not enough air, there's also... Um, wind and crazy temperatures and there's no moisture and so it's not a place where living creatures generally thrive. One of the hardest mountain climbs I've ever done was to the top of a mountain called the Estes Cone. This is it right here. And honestly, uh, now that it's on the screen, it doesn't look very impressive. Like, it kind of just looks like a a steep hill. But that, my friends, is a mountain, I promise. Um, And my mom and I hiked it the day after Christmas in 2020. Um, It actually sits adjacent to Long's Peak, uh, which is the highest peak in the Rocky Mountains. Um, And so right there in the middle of the screen is Long's Peak, um, standing at 14,255 feet. That little bitty mountain over there in the corner is the Estes Cone. (laughs) That's the one that my mom and I hiked. When you show it from this angle, it doesn't seem very impressive, but I promise, it's a real mountain. Uh, The very top of this mountain, you can kind of see on the picture, it just comes barely above the tree line. So right at the top there, the trees start to thin out, um, and there's just rocks at the top. The trail's about six miles, and my mom and I had this really excellent pace We were like, wow, this is so easy. I see why people love this. Um, We're going to make it there by lunch, and then we're going to, you know, have a nice meal on top of the mountain. We brought some food with us. We're like, oh, this is great. 
Uh, But then suddenly, and very suddenly, there were no more trees, and the trail transformed from what I would describe as like a steep incline to what could only be called a vertical rock scramble. The only way we knew where the trail went uh, was because of these little things called cairns. They're stacks of rocks that uh, the holy and blessed saints that went before us on the path left behind for us to know where to go. At that point, we were above 11,000 feet. We had already hiked for several miles. The air was getting thinner, and suddenly we were becoming less like hikers, which is all we were prepared for, and more like rock climbers, which neither of us had ever done in our entire lives. We had to stop for at least a minute every two uh, because we just couldn't catch our breath. Nothing we could do uh, could get us the oxygen that we needed. So about halfway up that last several hundred feet of this trail, we stopped again and we found some big rocks to sit on and we just kind of looked at each other and my mom looked at me and I looked at her, and without saying anything, I knew we were thinking the same thought, which was, I don't know if we can do this. We didn't need to say it aloud, and honestly, I'm not sure either of us could have even said it aloud, given how uh, profoundly out of breath we were. (laughs) It was one of only a, a handful of times in my life where I had reached what felt like a strict physical limit. I felt like there was nothing else left in my whole entire body. I couldn't go up any further, and also I couldn't go back down. (laughs) So we were just kind of stuck there for a few minutes on the top of this mountain, or near the top of this mountain. So we slowed down even further. We tried to take it one step at a time together at what could be described as a snail's pace, which actually might be a generous term for what we were doing. But After what felt like an absolutely agonizing eternity, but was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of like 15 minutes, we finally made it to the top. And it's really hard to describe the feeling that we had finally making it there. Physically, I felt weaker than I ever had in my entire life. And yet there was this swell of emotion, this swell of feeling, pride, disbelief, wonder, Maybe all of that was sort of helped along by the experience of oxygen deprivation. I don't know. But there was also just this awe at seeing this view surrounded on every side by these beautiful mountains and feeling like we were just right at the top of the world. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. About a year after this hike, an instructor in my spiritual direction program used the analogy of hiking up a mountain to describe the life of faith. And so naturally, I was completely drawn in by it, and I was reminded of that moment on the top of the Estes Cone. She said, when we are born, we all start at the bottom of this great big mountain, but because we are born in different places, to different families, with different cultures, we all start at a different place at the base of this mountain. And as we go about our lives, we ascend the mountain, some of us at different paces than others, (laughs) and on different paths. But eventually, if we continue to travel with intention, what we find is that we are coming closer and closer to the peak. By the way, I think that I should get extra Jesus points today for unironically saying the name of our church in a sermon. But anyway... 
The higher we get on this mountain called life, the more that we realize we are all climbing the same mountain, just from different starting points. And the higher we get, the closer we become to one another. And some might say, to God. It was such a profound way, uh, just an incredible way to speak about this journey of faith. And if you've been with us these last several weeks, we've been trying to do that. We've been trying to find language for the journey of faith. We've used the word ordo, which when it's in the graphic, it looks fancy up there, but it's just the Latin word for order. We're just talking about the order of a life of a Christian. And we started at the beginning, at the base of the mountain, you might say, uh, and we've moved through six stages, through divine pursuit and awareness, conversion, orientation, sanctification, and uh, second conversion. But today, I actually think it will be helpful for our purposes if we look at it less like a circle and more like this. Because as we begin to discuss the seventh stage of this journey, something has shifted a little bit. The angle of our hike has intensified. We've just made it past the tree line, metaphorically. We've been journeying for a really long time, and now we are starting to reach the place where it can be really challenging to thrive, to survive. This is the stage of faith that we have named friendship. Now, what's interesting about this mountain analogy here is that much like the actual experience of climbing a mountain, the journey slows down a whole lot from here on out. The way is steep and the air is thin. The steps that are required are large. It slows down because this is the hardest bit of the journey. I don't think anyone else has known the depth of this challenge uh, more intensely than the disciples did. When we come upon them in our gospel text today, the disciples are kind of thrown for a loop. They've gathered together to celebrate this holy feast, the Passover, this, um, this liturgical moment that they celebrate every single year in the exact same way. And yet, Jesus busts up in there and just turns it on his head. He starts by doing something uh, that to you and I just seems a little weird, right? It says that he uh, takes a towel and he kneels at the feet of his disciples and he washes their feet, which to us just sounds like strange and a little gross. Like, I don't like feet. I don't imagine that probably you do either. Uh, I, don't, I can't tell you the last time I washed someone's feet, and I wouldn't be sad if I never had to do it again. So to us, it just sounds strange, but to the disciples, it would have been shocking. It would have been astounding, because the only people who did that work, the only people who washed the feet of another were servants or slaves. And so for Jesus to do that would have been almost offensive to them. And then uh, they go through the dinner. Jesus kind of messes things up, does it very differently. And then he begins to lecture them. And at this point, I have to imagine that they're like, Jesus, we are done with the lectures. All throughout the Gospel of John, he's been telling them all the things. And they are so ready to not hear all the things. Uh, So he gives them what is the last of this um, several lengthy sermons that he offers to them. And he reminds them that he's leaving. They don't understand that part. He reminds them that they are supposed to keep his commandments and that he's going to send this advocate, this Holy Spirit, to be with them when he's gone. And then he tells them this. 
I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because everything I heard from my father I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, Jesus says to them, but I chose you and appointed you so that you could go and produce fruit and so that your fruit could last. Pretty important words in this last sermon they hear from Jesus. Although they wouldn't realize it for several more days, um, a lot would happen in those days. What's happening here is that Jesus is inviting these disciples into the next stage of their faith. Jesus is inviting them into friendship. In our work with these stages in the Ordo, what we've discovered uh, is what the disciples would come to know very well. This stage represents a substantial shift in the way that we live. Up until this point, we've lived into this type of faith that seeks only to do for God. So far, we've felt that it's, it's all about what we can do, what we can offer even what we can say. We've had to do all the things. We've had to pray all the right prayers. We've had to figure out how to be at church all the time. We've had to figure out how to do all of the best works of service. We've had to memorize all the right Bible verses, right? It's all about what we can do. Until we reach this phase, that's all that faith really is about. We see this reality play out over and over and over again in the life of these disciples. They're constantly following Jesus around, asking him, What should we be thinking? What should we be saying? What should we be doing? And then they try to do what they think it is that Jesus wants for them. They try to do what they think will please him. And more often than not, they do exactly the opposite of what Jesus wants them to do. We see that over and over again. And Jesus tells them later that they've got it all wrong. They need to reconsider. They need to have yet another conversion. For example, there's this one moment in the Gospel of Luke, where we see the disciples try to stop someone from being healed because the healer wasn't someone that they knew. Jesus says, what the heck are you doing? Or, well, I guess he says something kind of like that. That's the Amanda Rigby translation. Never stop someone from healing or being healed. He says, whoever is not against you is for you. And so the disciples are converted by Jesus yet again. There's another moment in the Gospel of Matthew when people are trying to bring their children to Jesus so that he might bless them. And the disciples stop these kids from coming to Jesus. And he says it again, what are you doing? Let these little children come to me. Don't forbid them because the kingdom of heaven belongs to people who are like these children. And again, they are converted by Jesus. You see, in the process of focusing on what we might do for God, much like the disciples, we often misunderstand what it is that God wants. We become so concerned with what has to be done, and we underestimate Vastly, we undervalue the importance of learning to be with God instead of doing for God. 
As it turns out, this stage, this new stage of friendship is reached when we are able to live into the truth that we have been claiming to believe this whole time. That one of our primary purposes as human beings is to embrace the presence of God in our lives as we encounter it. This realization actually happens for a few of the disciples in a moment when Jesus is transfigured before them in the Gospel of Matthew. This is an icon of that moment. It's kind of hard to see, but Jesus is the one right in the middle. And in this moment, it says that Jesus is transformed before their very eyes. It says that um, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Naturally, the disciples recognize in full in this moment that Jesus is divine. They begin to worship him. Peter even suggests that they build huts on the side of this mountain so that they can just stay there forever. Uh, Jesus doesn't really like that idea so much. So he convinces them to come back down. But that was their first taste of true friendship with God. And they wanted more of whatever that was. If we take our cues from the disciples who more often than not couldn't figure out what to do, in this phase of our faith, the best thing that we can do is actually less. Do less. In order to be more present to the voice and the movement of God in our lives. This stage is all about learning how to be friends with the divine. And luckily for us, Jesus gives us a little bit of a hint on how to do that in our scripture passage for today. Remain in my love, he says. Remain, stay, stop, pause, be. What we've discovered uh, as we've been doing work on this assessment, on this series, um, is that many Christians never make it past stage six, past the second conversion into stage seven, into the stage of friendship with God. And it's not because of some inadequacy. It's not because they're not as holy. It's because this stage requires not a list of things to do, but a way to be, a way of life. Remain in the love of God, Jesus says. Let it fill you and surround you in every moment. Let your friendship with God transfigure you into the image of God. This is exactly why our best advice, uh, for those of you who are approaching this stage or for anyone who's just interested in living a life of friendship with God, our best advice is this. First, you have to figure out how to rest alongside God. Rest in the presence of God. The witness of scripture teaches us very clearly that rest is a form of worship. Our rest can be worship to God. What a crazy idea that in this world of achievement, of hustling, of moving on up, getting it done, being successful, rest can be worship. And that means that our restful worship can be subversive. Our culture would have us move and work and do in every single second of every single day. But the invitation from God is so different. True friendship with God requires this special kind of holy resistance. It requires rest 
It requires being still and truly worshiping God. This rest can be found through practicing Sabbath, uh, which for those of us religious folks just means a, a day or, or a time fully set apart for the purposes of rest. If we could do this on a more frequent, frequent basis, that's great. But for those of us who have jobs and lives and families and all kinds of responsibilities, it's sometimes not quite that easy. And so our task is to figure out how to create moments of rest for ourselves in the midst of the busyness and the chaos. One of my favorite resting practices is called a breath prayer, which is just what it sounds like. It's a simple, short sentence that you can pray to God in the space of one breath. These are a couple of my favorites, but really you can put sort of any sentence in there that you want. Nothing can separate me as you inhale from the love of God as you exhale. On earth as it is in heaven. Keeping these prayers in your mind and in your heart can be so helpful in grounding us in God's constant presence with us, even in the midst of chaos. Building on this theme of rest, another important part of the stage is learning how to say no. Ooh. This is where I have to be completely honest. I am truly, deeply terrible at saying no. Like, really bad. As an Enneagram 2, in fact, one of my very favorite things is to say yes. I love saying yes. I love to be a part of things. I love to be busy. I love to help. I love to do. But not, um, but not all of the, the best Christian wisdom can tell us that that's a good thing. In fact, most, if not all, of the Christian wisdom that we can read about that we can hear, that is passed down to us, tells us that maintaining boundaries and saying no can be a holy act. It is, it's really quite remarkable how simplifying your calendar, your possessions, even your relationships can be a movement that empowers us to experience, to recognize the presence of God and rest in that more fully. A substantial part of this phase of the journey of faith is learning how not to be all things to all people so that we can tend to the most important things, these things that God has entrusted to us to care for, to be attentive to. So I invite you to join me in one of my very favorite annual practices for the sake of your friendship with God. It's called November. November. So next month, when the invitation comes to do something extra, try saying no. If you're anything like me, it may actually be physically painful to get that word to come out of your mouth. But say no, and instead spend that time living simply, resting, being quiet, just allowing yourself to be, instead of doing all the things all the time. November. It'll change your life. The final practice I would recommend to you in every stage of your walk of faith is community. Whether that is um, via mentorship or small groups, family members, the people that you work with or go to school with, deep friendship with other people will be key to helping you deepen your relationship with God. Because as scripture and tradition remind us over and over and over again, mature Christians 
people who are learning how to be friends with God, require, require two to three very deep friendships, people with whom they can be entirely 100% vulnerable. Think of how Jesus himself modeled this for us with Peter and James and John. They were, in essence, his inner circle. And the transfiguration story is all about how Jesus lets them see the fullness of who he is. At this stage of faith, we must focus on the quality rather than the quantity of our friendships. So this isn't necessarily about going out and making a bunch of new friends. The newfound intimacy that we recover, that we discover with our uh, human friendships can inspire us. It can awaken this desire in us for a deeper intimacy with God and vice versa. That goes both ways. Biblical heroes like Ruth and Naomi or Jonathan and David are excellent examples, perfect examples of this kind of holy friendship. We have to find our people and share the fullness of our hearts with them, our desires, our hopes, our dreams, our sins, our shortcomings, our fears, everything we can. And in doing that, we're able to then be fully seen and fully known by these people that we call friends. And if they're good ones, what they show us in return that we are, is that we are also able to be fully loved. That's friendship. That's true friendship. Remain in my love, God says to us. And so our job in this stage is to find those people who will help us remain right there, who will hold us there in the love of God. You know, one of my mentors always says that discipleship is just good friendship. That to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple, we must become experts in the art of friendship. He would say that as we practice being good friends to one another, what we're doing is forming ourselves in the kind of love that God offers to us. And if that's true, if he's right, and I tend to think he is, there's something that we have to come to terms with first. And that is this. One of the greatest failings, in my estimation, of the modern American church is the way that we have domesticated Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. Our most common understanding of Jesus Christ is the soft, gentle, child-hugging, lamb-carrying shepherd who says only the nicest things and makes us feel good about ourselves. When I look around uh, at the Big C Church, it seems like this is the Jesus that we are worshiping more often than not. Now, I don't want to say that Jesus isn't those things. He very well may be all of them. But when we focus only on those aspects of Jesus, we are missing a huge part of who he is. In fact, we might be missing that part that will challenge us, that will transfigure us, that will lead us to the top of this giant mountain we keep walking up. Because Jesus is kind 
and good, but he's also sharp and bold and so committed to a vision of the world as it could be, as it should be, that he never suffers fools. Jesus flips tables and he calls out oppressors and he transgresses unjust laws and he flouts authority without blinking an eye. If this is the Jesus that we know, then this also has to be the Jesus that we know too. In fact, uh, <laughs> if you really think about it, Jesus is exactly the kind of friend that our parents warned us about. Someone who gets in trouble with the law. Someone who isn't employed. Someone who surrounds himself with all of the worst kind of people. Jesus is wild and untamable. Jesus is a dangerous friend. And when the time comes, when you finally reach the stage of friendship with Jesus, he'll ask you to be the same way. He'll ask you to walk away from family for the sake of the gospel or He'll ask you to sell everything that you own and give the proceeds to the poor. Or he'll ask you to forgive even when someone commits the same sin against you over and over and over again. Forgive into eternity. He'll lead you on a path that is nowhere you ever planned to go. And it will be harder than you ever thought it would be. The air will start to get thin. You'll have to stop a lot. Pause and rest and wait. And in the moments when it feels like too much, in the moments where you just can't catch your breath and you're starting to wonder if it's all worth it anyway, in the moments when you want nothing more than to turn back, Jesus will meet your eye. And without even saying a word, you'll both know that you can do it. Because what's waiting for you on the other side of that struggle, what's waiting for you at the top of that steep path, it's nothing short of full and perfect life. It's actually heaven. Maybe not in the way that you've always pictured it, but in the way that Jesus always describes it. So practice rest, seek simplicity, find your people, and then get going on that hike. It's a really, really long way to the top. But the good news is that you have a true friend who will be with you every single step of the way. Thank you for listening to The Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.